Welcome to Slaking Thirst, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. Well, friends, welcome to uh, our Advent Parish mission. Behold your mother, Eche Mater Tua. This is an awesome opportunity, opportunity for us tonight to just spend some time before Christmas in this season of Advent, just opening our hearts, receiving from the Lord, and just contemplating Our Lady, our Guadalupe. Today's your feast day. How awesome is that, right? Let's give it up for Our Lady Guadalupe. Yeah! So before I was before I was assigned to Sacred Heart, uh, I, like I mean, I was you know seminarian obviously, and I was assigned to Communion of Saints Parish in Cleveland Heights, and I didn't really have, uh, truth be told, a real devotion to the Sacred Heart before I got here. And uh, once I got here, it became obviously a real focal point for my prayer. And a couple months ago, about six seven months ago, as I was sitting and praying with the Lord, this imagery just kept coming up. This imagery of the Lord's heart, the imagery of fire uh, in the Lord's heart. Every image of the sacred heart you ever see depicts the Lord's heart just aflame. Every saint, every mystic who's ever seen the sacred heart, they all basically stammer out the same thing. All they just say is fire. Fire. It's, it's a flame. It's a heart of fire. Why fire, right? It's, and what kind of fire? It's not the fire of destruction. It's not like Jesus is an arsonist. He's just like, ah, burn it all. They're just sinners, right? That's not what it is. Right? Maybe that's in other, you know, uh, other Christian churches. That's not the Catholic view of the fire, right? It is the fire. It's the fire of the Trinity. It's the fire that rages in the heart of the Lord. It's a fire of mercy. It's a consuming fire of love, right? And the Lord's desire from the very beginning, you hear it in the scriptures. You hear Jesus saying, I have come to cast fire upon the earth. And how I wish it were already blazing. Like, I want to engulf the world. I want to consume the world for tonight, let's use the imagery. I want to impregnate the world with the fire that made the world, right? That is the desire in our Lord's heart. Perhaps you've noticed, uh, if you've been in and out of the school, or maybe you've got new stationery from the parish or in the bulletin or on the website, we've got some new kind of logo action going on here at Sacred Heart. We've updated our marketing, right? We hired on a full-time director of marketing, Dan First. He's been killing it since May, I think we hired him. But yeah, Dan has updated our website. We've got a new logo that has the Sacred Heart of Jesus more. You can see the flames more on fire. Uh, and it's really, really awesome. Just more reflecting this desire in the Lord's heart. So anyway, a couple months ago, uh, Jesus created an incredible opportunity for us at Sacred Heart. That uh, after 10 incredible years of service to our parish, Taylor Gosiaco, who I don't think he's here tonight. Maybe he's watching online. Hi, Taylor. Right? So Taylor Gosiaco, who was the youth minister here, he, uh, he decided it was time to step away from uh, ministry with us to step more fully into, you know, full-time career. And, you know, he had another kid on the way. They had five boys, and they were finally having a little girl. So he was like, I, gotta, I, gotta, I, need, I need full-time dad time, right? I guess that's what happens when a little girl is being born into a family of five boys. I guess. I don't know. So, so Taylor stepped away from uh, our youth ministry program here, which created an opportunity for us to cast the net out and find someone to, uh, to step into his shoes. And so we did a lot of interviews. And uh, we hired on an incredible young woman. Claire, are you here tonight? Where are you? She's all the way in the back. Okay, so I'm going to brag about Claire for a little bit. So we did, uh, we did a, a wide search, and 
Within the first, like, two minutes of talking to Claire in her interview, like, I knew that, like, the Lord sent us an absolutely incredible gift. Um, she's amazing. She's absolutely amazing. And she actually accepted the job. She accepted the position on the solemnity of Pentecost, which was such... When you think about the providence, the fire in the Lord's heart, his desire to set this parish on fire, that our new youth minister was hired on the Feast of Pentecost, it's like you almost believe there's a God, you know? It's, uh, it's like there's like coincidences or something. It was just absolutely amazing. So Claire's incredible. She's, one, I think, one of the best youth ministers in the diocese, and she's doing some incredible stuff for our young people here. We've completely revamped the middle school stuff, the middle school program. We've got a whole new middle school youth group called The Vine. If you're a parent of a kid in The Vine, can you raise your hand? Can you kind of hear a whoop whoop? Your kids are so much better at that than you are. <laughs> so we've revamped the middle school youth group program. We've got a brand new sort of take to the high school program. The high school program is called 1010, based on John chapter 1010, where Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And their middle school program is called The Vine which is a reference to Jesus saying, I'm the vine and you are the branches. How do we get connected to that vine? So I want, to just to, just, I want us to take a second because all the, the proceeds that tonight's going to generate as you leave the doors and there's going to be some of our teens standing at the doors with baskets, all of those donations go to just bolstering our youth ministry programs, giving, getting us the ability to send our core members to um, you know, training or different conferences or retreats, just getting us the opportunity to build it up even stronger. So I want to show you a little bit of um, just what's going on and how the Holy Spirit is unleashing fire in the heart of our parish and the hearts of our young people. So uh, buckle up. Here we go.
That's happening here, y'all. Let's give it up for Claire. Oh, man. Look, the reality is if we are not aiming our efforts of evangelization at the hearts of our young people, we're just going to be a church of, a mu- of museum artifacts in 10, 20, 30 years. And that's not what I signed up for. So we are doing things different here. We are putting energy and effort and resources at the young church. And uh, we can't do it without your help. And fruit is being born. Fruit is being born. And it's only the beginning. The fire is spreading. It's going to be awesome. So like I said, there's going to be a free will offering at the doors as you leave the church tonight. You know, uh, it's totally between you and God what you give. And this parish has been so incredibly generous. Um, so just going to thank you in advance for all of that. So, all right. So tonight is about that, that desire in the Lord's heart to see his church on fire, to see Jesus setting our hearts on fire, to see our parish set on fire, to see like his desire to set Wadsworth on fire, like that this little part, this little patch of the world, this patch of creation would be consumed in the love of Jesus, that the same fire that rages in the sacred heart, he wants it in our hearts. Like when you read the scriptures, when you read the scriptures, anybody who's lukewarm, you get spat out. I don't want that for us. I want us to be burning. I want us to be burning, burning, burning. This reality, this vision of Jesus' heart that wants to like set our hearts on fire, it's not just like metaphor, it's not just a pipe dream. Like this literally happened, what I'm talking about, this whole business of being set on fire happened to a member of our human race. It's who we're talking about tonight. That this woman, right, this woman, our queen enthroned above, she so opened herself so wildly, so perfectly to the glory of God, to the fire of love, that she literally conceived fire in her womb. This is a woman who is clothed with the sun. She's just walking around sunbeams. Who are you wearing tonight? I'm wearing the sun. Thank you very much, right? This is a woman who is so on fire that, like, she just rages. She just rages, right? So, again, nowhere do we see this blazing desire in the Lord's heart more perfectly exemplified than in Our Lady of Guadalupe, right? Whose feast day, like I said, we celebrate tonight. So tonight is about contemplating this woman, mining the riches of this image that is so rich in symbolism. What does she have to teach us about our humanity? What does she have to teach us? What does this image have to teach us about what it means to be human? What does this have to teach us about the desire in the Lord's heart for us during Advent? This is where we're going to be soaking tonight. And we're just going to be scratching the surface, even after two hours. We're going to be bombarding you with, like, so many images. I think my slide deck is like 150-something images. So, like, you're welcome. All right, so, like, we're going to be bombarding you with images. we got some clips. The guys over here, Chris and Josh and Joe, they're going to be playing some beautiful music throughout. And you might notice that some of the songs that they're playing, as you're listening, you're like, hey, that's not... A church song. That's not in the gather hymnal. You're right, right? There's going to be some songs that you're going to hear tonight that, um, that they, they've probably never been played in this church before. So I see Father Joe just walked in and uh, <laughs> I just got really nervous. So, but here's the truth that God who is beauty, God who is beauty, sends a spark of his beauty, a spark of his creativity into the hearts of his artists. And you're going to hear in a lot of these, so much of this music, maybe music that you've, you've heard before, songs you've heard before, and you've never thought, like, like, this is actually a song about Mary. This is actually a song about Mary. That Christianity, it's the religion of desire, and its saints are the ones who are willing to burn. And so often, the ones who are burning are these musicians who, uh, who are very far outside the walls of our church. They are, we can call them twisted mystics. We can call them twisted mystics. 
They don't know what they're reaching out for, but they're reaching out for the one who is the creator of the stars. So tonight, we're going to be reflecting on the crazy love of our God. The crazy love of our God. The God who bankrupts heaven. The God who becomes a zygote. He became a zygote in the womb of Mary. That at one point in time, God smelled like a newborn baby. How insane is that? But that is our God. It's a madness we can't fathom, but this is what we're going to be sitting in tonight. Just begging the Holy Spirit to give us, like, maybe one degree more. Like, let me open my heart and receive, like, one degree more of this crazy love of our God. The love that Mary presses into. get that figured out. Vince, Joe, figure it out. Okay, so this woman, our queen, this is the most depicted woman in human history. 
the most depicted woman in human history. We're very accustomed to picturing Mary kind of looking like this. Very calm, very poised, very demure, like, you know, like the statue at your grandma's house, right? Something like that, right? I prefer kind of like the imagery that the, that the medieval manuscript, like calligraphers wrote. This is Mary kicking Satan's butt. This is the Mary Island right here. Look at that. <laughs> they had a lot of imagination. These medieval artists, right? Look at this Mary with her, like, war hammer. She's like, boom, like Thor, right? Okay, this is the most depicted woman in human history. She's inspired the greatest works of art, the greatest pieces of sculpture, the most beautiful frescoes, art in stone and glass. She is absolutely exquisite. She is the one who's inspired Dante and so many others. She is the all-beautiful one. Toda pulpera est, Maria. You are all beautiful. She's depicted in every culture, in every civilization, in every way imaginable. This is our queen. This is the most depicted woman in human history. She's exquisite. I have this image hanging in my office. If you've been in my office, you've seen it probably on the wall. It's, uh, it's called, if only for a moment. It's by an artist named Greg Olson. Look at that. Mary's laying on the ground with Jesus. I picture her lying there and just asking Jesus, what's that one's name? Because she could. Her son made him, right? Let's just zoom in on this for a moment. This is where the hearts of all moms go, uh, right? <laughs> all the art that's been uh, inspired by her over the centuries, so powerful, but it can give the impression that she is someone who just floats on a cloud bank, that she's not really real. This is a woman you can rest your foot on. She not only was that real, she is that real. You can rest your foot on her. This is a great place for us to start. All of this art throughout the centuries, like I said, has given the impression that, that she's this floating porcelain statue whose feet probably never touched the ground. I want to start with this quote from a, a British, uh, 20th century British, British mystic named Carol Houselander. She wrote a book called The Reed of God, R-E-E-D, of God. Listen to this. When I was a small child, someone for whom I had great respect told me, never do anything that Our Lady would not do. For she said, if I did, the angels in heaven would blush. For a short time, this advice took in me like an inoculation, causing a positive paralysis of piety. It was clear to me that all those things which spelt joy to me were from henceforward taboo and off limits. I simply could not imagine her doing anything at all. She was the Madonna of the Christmas card, immobile, seated forever in the immaculately clean stable of golden straw and shining snow. She didn't seem real. Nothing about her seemed real. Not even the stable in which love was born. Eventually, I broke down and sobbed with boredom and despair. Sadly, to many, to many Catholics, Mary is unreal and unattractive. Friends, if our impression of Mary is the immobile, unreal, unattractive Madonna of the Christmas card, we know not who Mary is. 
If there's a part of our hearts that thinks that she's not the most beautiful thing that God has ever made, we know not who Mary is. Mary's the crown of all creation. She is the, the crown, the pinnacle of all created beauty. Like, what, like what is the most beautiful thing for you in nature? Like, like what is it? Is it, like, is it a starry night? Is it a sunrise? Is it a sunset? Is it the dew drops on a flower? Is it the beautiful black silhouette of trees at night in the winter? What is it? If, you've been to the, if you were at the mission, you know this for me right here, right? The snowflakes. Holy smokes, the snowflakes. I could fall into an ecstasy looking at those snowflakes. I'm going to keep going. Is it the, the, the golden ratio, the beauty of the harmony that God has made into creation? Like, is it that? What is it? Is it the pristine snow that falls? The leaves of fall? What is it? Like all of this creative beauty, whatever it is that moves your heart, like it ain't nothing compared to her. She is the summation. She is the summation of all creative beauty. She is, she is the perfect exemplar. She is the sum total of all creative beauty. And her beauty is just a little, little glimmer of the uncreated beauty that is God. She is total poker S. She is the all-beautiful one. She is the mystical rose, right? Who's ever heard that when Mary appears, people smell roses? Have you heard this before in Marian apparitions? Oftentimes it's said when Mary shows up, people smell roses. And why is that? It's not because Mary smells like roses. It's because the roses smell like Mary. They're imitating her, right? All the flowers the fragrance of our churches at springtime and Easter, right? You walk in here, the bursting Easter lilies, that fragrance, it's all just imitating her. She is the mystical rose. She's the, the garden enclosed. She is the open vessel of longing. She's all of these things and so much more. She's the morning star announcing the dawn. I could keep going, but I'm going to stop there. She was and is totally alive. She's totally alive. She is the radiance of humanity. She's not just a character of fiction, right? She was a real woman who opened herself so fully and so completely to the love of God. She literally conceived divine life in her womb. And that's what this image is depicting for us. This woman who is so radiantly alive, she opened herself to divine love, conceiving the fire of God's glory in her womb. Like, we're going to be soaking tonight in the theology, what's revealed in Mary's body, her feminine body, in particular through this image of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And some of us may be unfamiliar with this story, right? Today's her feast day, like I said. So I want to just retell this story for us, if you've not heard it before. About 500 years ago, right, there was uh, a great effort to bring Christianity to the Americas. A number of religious orders were attempting to do it, but they were largely unsuccessful. There was a recent Christian convert, a man named Juan Diego, who was making his way to Mass. And as he was going along the way, he heard a burst of bird song, and he looked up and he saw this radiantly beautiful woman. And she introduced herself to him, and she said, I am the Holy Mother of God, and I want a shrine to be built on this hill, Tepeyac Hill. I want a shrine to be built here in honor of me. And one day he goes thinking, like, like who am I to bring this message? Like, I, I'm just, I'm a nobody. I'm poor. I have nothing, right? You should pick someone more influential, right? But this is Mary's way. This is what she does. This is the pattern that gets established. This is what she'll do throughout the rest of history. She picks St. Bernadette. She picks 
Francesco and Jacinta and Lucia Marto, like these nobodies, that's who she picks. That's who she picks. So she picks Juan Diego and she says, I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to send you to the bishop. I'm going to give you a sign. And on the top of the hill, growing in the dead of winter, were this beautiful garden of Castilian roses. These roses that don't grow at this time of year. They're not even native to this part of Mexico. So Mary has Juan Diego unfurl his tilma, the coarse cactus fiber garment that he was wearing. She lays it down and she places these roses. She arranges them in the tilma. And Juan Diego takes the tilma. He goes to the bishop, Bishop Zumaraga. She go, he goes to him. He's got the bundle of roses in his cloak and he's thinking, this is the sign that if I show the bishop these roses, he's, surely he's going to think something miraculous has happened. So... Juan Diego comes to the bishop and he opens the tilma. And as he opens the tilma, there falling to the ground come the roses. But that wasn't what the bishop was astonished by. Because there appearing on the tilma was the image of Our Lady Guadalupe. Friends, the image of Our Lady Guadalupe is not a painting. It's not a painting. Like there's no pigmentation known to scientists that can be detected there. The image itself floats several microns above the fibers. They have no idea how this image is there. Not to mention the fact that this rough cactus coarse fiber garment should have deteriorated hundreds of years ago, but there it is, it's never been preserved, it's just there existing. Claire was just in Mexico with the pilgrimage group witnessing the, the tilma itself. There it is. Right? 450 years later, it has survived all sorts of things. Attacks, wars, bombs. One of the most incredible stories. Someone came at one point in the church. There was this beautiful, big, golden crucifix hanging above the image. Some psychopath came with a bomb in a flower pot and put the bomb on the altar beneath the image of Our Lady, trying to destroy it. So the bomb detonates, but somehow, miraculously, as the bomb detonated, the golden crucifix bent forward and shielded the image. The church was destroyed, but the crucifix protected the image. I mean, Jesus is an ultimate mama's boy, right? Like, I mean, come on now. It's like, boom! It's unbelievable. Ophthalmologists who have studied this image, they have noticed that there is micro-images in Our Lady's eyes. In the corneas, there's micro-images. There's real refraction that the eyes, in other words, actually function like human eyes. Again, not a painting. Not a painting. Also, the tilma, this is fascinating, the tilma stays at a perfect 98.6 degrees, always. As if Mary is actually continuously there. Right? There's stars on her cloak, as you can see. For years, astronomers were, were baffled by the stars because there was just something wrong about it. Until one day someone said, I wonder if it's just inverted. Turns out the stars that appear on Mary's cloak are the exact arrangement of constellations that appeared in the night sky above Tepeyac Hill exactly on the night, December 12, 1531. The only difference is that the stars on her cloak don't appear as if you're a viewer looking down from above. They're arranged on her cloak as if you are God looking down, but like above the stars looking down at earth. That's how they're arranged. So this image appears 
to the Aztec people. We're going to talk about this more. 1531. Anybody else know what was going on in Europe at this time, 1531? What's that? The Reformation. Martin Luther's nailing his 95 theses to the church in Wittenberg. And at this time, it begins this flood of Catholics out of the church in Europe. Mary appears in Mexico, December 12, 1531. And for the next 10 years, approximately 10 million people come into the church. Mary's like, I got this, guys. I got this. <laughs> As the church is bleeding out in one part of the world, she is growing tremendously in another part. Friends, who is this woman? What is going on with this image? Who is this woman, right? Who the heck is this woman? This woman is your mom. She's the supreme gift to you from Jesus from the cross. At, at his last moment, the, the, the most sublime, the supreme gift that he gave us in his life and death, it was not like words of encouragement. The supreme gift, the penultimate gift, was his mother. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. John, the beloved disciple, he represents every single one of us. He represents every Christian that would ever live. And Jesus said, I need you to also have my mom. She's your mom. That's who she is. So Juan Diego, part of this whole story that's fascinating is, after Mary appeared to him the first time, he goes back to his house. His uncle, who he was living with, was very, very sick at the time. She asked him to come back the next day, and he just, he was going to do it, but then his uncle got really sick. And so he was going to bypass Tepeyac Hill to avoid, you know, the Queen of Heaven and Earth because apparently he thought he could do that. Turns out you can't. Mary intercepted him and she's like, hey, Juanito, what you doing? Right? <laughs> I told you to come back up to the hill. And he's like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, my uncle's very, very sick. He was very concerned. And Mary said to him, this is the first Marian apparition. And Mary says to him, Something very different than what Mary says in the other apparitions, right? Like, when Mary appears throughout the rest of history, like, you know, Fatima, Lourdes, these different sightings, these different apparitions. Not sightings, she's not like a UFO. Like, UFO? Okay. So, like, these other Marian apparitions, she's like, she's intense. She's like, get out your rosaries, pray your rosary, there's going to be a world war, right? Like, okay, Mary, all right, gotcha. Right, she shows the kids of, of Fatima, Portugal, she shows them a vision of hell. This is an intense Mary. But Guadalupe Mary, she's telling Juan Diego, she says, hey, Juanito, listen, and let it penetrate your heart. Do not be troubled or weighed down with grief. Do not fear any illness or vexation, any anxiety or pain. Am I not here who am your mother? Are you not under my shadow and protection? Am I not your fountain of life? Are you not in the folds of my mantle? In the crossing of my arms? Is there anything else you need? I don't know where you're at right now. I don't know what's going on in your world. But these are words for you and for me tonight. Just as she was saying to Juan Diego, like, do you not know where you are? You're not just left out on the floor, helpless to cry. You're not being ferberized in the crib. Heaven is not just letting you cry it out. You are in the crossing of my arms. That's where we live as Christians, in the loving arms of our mother.
that's where we live. That's, where, that's what it means to be a Christian. We just live our lives in the arms of Mary. Like in our baptism, like the church calls the baptismal font the womb of the church. The church fathers, they called it a mystical womb, right? It's Mary's womb. Christians aren't, you don't become a Christian when you register at a parish, right? It's not just paperwork that makes you a Christian. Christians are born, right? In the mother church of Christendom, St. John Lateran in Rome, which is the Pope's cathedral, there's the baptistry, and inside the baptistry, there's this beautiful script around the baptistry that speaks about, here, Mother Church gives birth to her children virginally from the fruitful nuptials with the Spirit. Like, friends, this is deep stuff, deep stuff. Like, as Christians, we live our lives. Yes, we leave our mother's wombs after nine months. Then we re-enter our mother's womb in the waters of baptism. Remember when Jesus in his conversation with Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus who comes to him at night and he says to him, you have to be born again, born from above, born anew of water and the Holy Spirit. Nicodemus is like, I mean, like, that's going to be kind of difficult. I, I'm, I surely don't mean I have to go back into my mother's womb. Jesus doesn't say no. He just means it in a mystical sense. Like to be a Christian is to abide, to exist to live in her, to live in this woman, so that upon our, upon our birth from this world, our death into eternity, hopefully by the power of the Holy Spirit, we've been being formed into an image of Jesus. Probably getting ahead of myself. You still with me tonight? You still good? Okay, praise the Lord. All right, this is deep stuff. This is deep, deep stuff. So here's the question. What did 
Like, what did the Aztecs see, right? Because this is the culture that Mary appears to. What did the Aztecs see that caused them to so rapidly convert? I think it's hilarious, right? I think it's hilarious as a priest who's in the work of evangelization, right? I picture these, these Franciscans, these, these missionaries coming to this new world trying to proclaim the gospel, right? And I picture them coming back and having little meetings and being like, I made two Christians today. They're like, yeah, man, right? Mary shows up. She's like, 10 million, you know, like, <laughs> mic drop. Like, like, oh my gosh, if only we could just let her lead, let her lead. Then, man, that's, that's, she's the star of the new evangelization. So, so yeah, that's the question. What did they see where they're like, yep, I'm in, I'm in. This is where we as modern Christians kind of don't see it. We don't understand what's going on in this image. This is what I want to walk through because the tilma, right, which is this image, is a codex. It's a codex. It's a, it's a rich symbolic image, right? Think of like the Egyptian hieroglyphics, right? It's a pictorial, pictographical language, right? That's the language of the Aztecs, right? So this codex, this tilma, it... it It untwists the lies of the Aztec culture, which was very similar to our culture. It was a culture of death, a culture of intense graphic sexual promiscuity. Like, the Aztec religion was one of, like, human sacrifice, right? On the top of these temples, there would be a priest who they would bring a victim, usually a, a captured person of war, up to the top of the temple, and they would kill the victim and they would carve out the heart of the victim they would throw the person's body down the temple because they believed the gods were appeased by the shedding of human blood it was a culture of death not unlike our culture today and the imagery that adorned their temples that adorned their world was one of intense graphic sexual imagery so Mary comes into that scene, into that culture, to untwist the lies of this culture of death, the lies of this sexual brokenness, right? Just like we need Mary to come into our culture today to untwist the lies of our culture of death and the lies of our sexual brokenness. Amen? amen. So badly. Can I get an amen? amen? We need Mary to come into that. So she shows us like the true victory of the true God. That's what's going on. This woman clothed with the sun, Standing on the moon, wearing the stars, she speaks right into the heart of Aztec cosmology. This is a cosmic woman who the Aztecs saw and they're like, okay, we got you. We got you. It showed them that the ultimate meaning of the body was not death. The ultimate meaning of the body was life-givingness. And in particular, the body was meant for divine life. That's what they saw. That's that's what they saw. That's 10 million converts. Mary's body, they saw. This woman's body, whoever she is, they saw that her body was filled full, filled to the full of divine life. That this is the destiny of our body. Where do we see this? So, this image right here. So you have to picture, I just flipped Our Lady upside down. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay, but we did. We flipped Mary upside down. This little flower image here that I have that they're pointing to, it's not just a flower. For the Aztecs, this was uh, the, 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 the symbol of, you can almost picture it, it's the symbol of the human heart, right? And coming out of it are these arteries, right? So it's the symbol of humanity, the human heart, but it's also the symbol of civilization and culture, right? You see the heart being connected to via this sort of river symbol that 
It's connected to the blue part of her cloak. For the Aztecs, that blue teal was a symbol of the heavens, right? It was a symbol of the divine. What they saw there, that like the, the way to have a culture, the way the culture is meant to be built, is when like divine life flows into the human heart. That's what they saw, right? That's what they saw when divine life flows into the human heart. So who is this lady? What did they see? She was a mestiza. A mestiza. I know we're not familiar with that word, but what is that word? She was depicted, Mary showed up as part Spanish and part Aztec. Why is that significant, that she's mixed race? Well, for the Aztecs, a, a very intense mark of cultural shame, a, a deep wound in their cultural memory, was when, again, the Spanish came to this part of the world you know, looking for gold, looking for power, some looking to bring the gospel, right, in the most charitable interpretation. There was a lot of brutal conquest. And as a result of the rape and pillage, there were a lot of these mestiza children walking around, these mixed breeds, these part Aztec, part Spanish. And it was just such a glaring reminder for the Aztecs of a wound, a sexual wound, a brokenness in their cultural story And she comes, Mary comes, not as pure Aztec and not as pure Spanish. She comes as this combination of both, coming right, coming with her son right to the heart, right into the midst of our shame. Like she comes right there. So this is a woman, Mary is a woman who is not scandalized by our shame. She's not scandalized by our brokenness. She's not scandalized by, like, what what are the sexual wounds of your story? The wounds of your family story, right? What are the sexual wounds of your bloodline, your family bloodline? In a few weeks, we're going to hear the the genealogy from Matthew's gospel, right? So-and-so begat so-and-so, so-and-so begat so-and-so, so on and so forth, right? There is some juicy Jerry Springer kind of details in that genealogy. If you're a first century Jew and you hear David became the father of Solomon, whose mother had been the wife of Uriah, you're like, oh, snap, right? Like, had been the wife of Uriah. Sheesh, right? Judah became the father of Boaz, right? Like, whose mother was Rahab. Like, on and on and on. Like, I, I, I think she was a prostitute, right? Like, into this bloodline, the Lord comes, right? This is what Mary is saying. Like, I am not ashamed of it. I'm not, I don't blush by it. Think of Carol Houselander. I cannot do anything that will make her blush. Heresy, heresy. That is not our queen. That is not our mama. Right, she comes right into the stinky diaper with all the stuff just all smeared over, blown out, spaghetti-o up the back, right? Like she comes right into it. The warm little wet, you know, like a, what are they called? Wipes, wet wipes, there you go. Like what's the thing? Priest. That's what she does, that's what she does. If there's a part of your heart that thinks of any of these moments in your story that just like, if, there, if you've ever said, I'm just going to take this one to the grave. Friends, that is the enemy desperately holding on to a stronghold. That he doesn't want Mary or Jesus or the Holy Spirit or love to, to reclaim There's nothing that she can't untwist. There's nothing that she's ashamed of. She comes with such tenderness into it. 
So we see in this lady, our queen, we see on her head this outer garment, right? This blue teal garment covered in the stars, right? It's, it's an image, like I said, a symbol of the heavens, right? That's, that's uh, accentuated by the stars. If you've ever been, who's ever been to the cathedral downtown, St. John the Evangelist Cathedral? Okay, so we need more people to visit the cathedral. It is, it's awesome. If you've ever been to the cathedral, you'll notice, you'll remember that on the ceiling of the cathedral, the ceiling is also blue. Covered in stars, right? It's not an accident. They weren't just like, how about blue? (laughs) It's again because we are, as Christians, we worship in the ecclesia, in Mater Ecclesia, Mother Church. Like, just general mother? No, no. This mother, right? Our worship is in her womb. Every time we come to Mass, I'm getting ahead of myself. Every time we come to Mass, though, it's like we are re-witnessing the Annunciation, but from the inside Right? Gabriel comes saying, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Send forth your Holy Spirit upon these gifts we pray. Like dew fall from above. It's like we witness the Annunciation happen. Every Mass in this altar. Because where are we? We're in her womb. We're in her womb. That's why, the cover, that's why the ceiling is covered in blue and stars in the cathedral. What? That's where we are. That's where we are. There's plenty of womb in the womb. <laughs> This interior garment, right, the, the, the brownish um, beige color there, it's a symbol. It represents humanity or earth, or, right, like, like the stuff of matter, right? So that's what you see there. you got the heavenly cloaking covering the earthly. You zoom in here real close. You look at their, her cross. It's kind of hard to see in this image, but she's got like this brooch necklace, and right there in the center is a little black cross. Again, for the Aztecs, they would have seen this is a woman whose God is the same God as those missionaries who came to us bearing that cross. Her God is their God. Her God is their God. You see down here, um, you see down here, she's standing, she's standing on the moon. She's in front of the sun. She's clothed in the stars. Like I said, these are all Aztec deities. Right? So for the Aztecs, they're like, Sun, moon, stars, those are our gods. But here she is, she's just nonchalantly standing on the moon, standing in front of the sun, just like wearing the stars. They're like, this, this woman is greater than all of those. And yet they saw that her head was bowed and her hands were folded in prayer, that she is not the supreme one. She's not a goddess. That She's pointing to someone greater than herself. She's reflecting a light that's greater than herself. Fulton Sheen, any Fulton Sheen fans out there? Fulton Sheen. All right, so Fulton Sheen, he's my dog. I went, after I was ordained, I went to uh, uh, the cathedral in New York City to consecrate, to give my priesthood to him, just ask for his intercession. I almost broke his pray to, uh, kneeling on it. That's a different story for another day. He was a much smaller man than I was. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> Fulton Sheen had this to say about Our Lady. He said, hers is a reflected light. Mary, is a, she's a reflected light. God who made the sun also made the moon. The moon does not take away from the brilliance of the sun. All of its light is reflected from the sun. The Blessed Mother reflects her divine son. Without him, she is nothing. With him, she is the mother of men. Everything that the church ever says, every doctrine, every dogma that has to do with Mary, in the end, it's ultimately about defending something that has to do with Jesus. Right? If we get Mary wrong, we're going to get Jesus wrong. If we say that she's not the mother of God, as Nestorius said, then we're going to say that Jesus actually didn't become, that God didn't become man, right? 
And so then you ask, like, who is that person that she gave birth to? Well, he's God. Then therefore she's the mother of God, right? Mary is the crusher of all heresies. She's the crusher of all heresies. You got to get Mary right to get Jesus right. She is just the moon, though. She's the reflected light. In her hands, though, you see this. You see she's holding, if you zoom in, you see that she's holding in her hand like a little maraca thing. That For the Aztecs, this was like part of their victory. It was like a victory. It was an instrument you would play in the, at the end of a battle for victory. And her, her knee, you kind of see her knee is kind of bent like this. Right? She's doing an Aztec victory dance. This is a dance. It's something like this. Like, I don't know. Does it look like I just won a battle? <laughs> Apparently for the Aztecs, that was really cool. It was like the Macarena, like 1.0, okay? So Mary is doing this victory dance. She's doing the victory dance. This is the dancing queen. Anybody hearing Abba? She is the dancing queen, right? And she's the moon, right? So like we're just dancing in the moonlight, y'all. Just dancing in the moonlight. Right? You with me? Are you with me? Man, I'm telling you. She is, she is not a porcelain statue. She is, she's burning with the glory of God. She's doing a victory dance because she has crushed the serpent's head. She's crushed the serpent's head. It's the most important part of the serpent to crush, by the way, right? If you're going to crush a serpent, you want to crush its head, right? You crush any other part of it, you're not going to do it. You're not going to be doing too good, okay? Here's a great image to understand what's going on in our culture today, right? You got Mary, foot on the serpent's head. And the serpent's tail is just, just whipping around furiously. Welcome to our culture today, y'all, okay? We are in the final death throes of the enemy. Someone right before they die as they're choking, they are the craziest, loudest, most desperate. That's the enemy. It's not a question. He's already lost. He's just rearranging furniture on the Titanic right now. That's all that's going on. He's just trying to take as many down with him as possible. Right? The enemy is a flea. He's like a stupid mosquito. Just, right? He just lands there. And Jesus is just like... It's that, it's that simple. We're right now living in the time... This is where we're living right now. Right, that's where we are right now. It's guaranteed. It's guaranteed. All right. This woman, she's the dancing queen. She's so great. All right. I want you to look at the bottom of this image here. You see, uh, I remember thinking for a long time that this this figure at the bottom was like the devil. I remember thinking that the moon was horns. That's not what it is. You've got an angel down there. See, in one hand, the angel is grabbing onto the, the beige what does the beige represent? Heaven or earth? The other hand's holding on to the teal to the blue, which represents heaven or earth. See, the angel is holding on to both heaven and earth. You see in this angel a sort of glimpse of Gabriel, the annunciation, the coming together, the bringing together of both heaven and earth in this woman. Heaven and earth collide. They come together in this woman. We see in this, this little micro image of the annunciation. I want us to look here at her hair. Right? Her hair is in a particular style that for the Aztecs, the hair being in the style, folded down the center, was the way that unwed women would wear their hair. In other words, virgins. So they saw her hair and they're like, virgin. But then they looked down and they saw this black sash around the midsection. Which is what pregnant Aztec women would wear. 
right, around her, around her midsection, this sash. They saw virgin pregnant. How very curious. And then they looked closer, and they saw this small, seemingly insignificant, four-petaled flower. For them, it was a symbol of divinity. So get this. December 12, 1531, the Aztecs gaze upon this image of Our Lady, and they saw, in an instant, virgin pregnant with God. That's who she is.
There's one line in there where it says, Heaven's gate works both ways. Heaven comes to earth through the portal that is Mary, and earth comes to heaven through Mary. She is at the center of the mystery. In some ways, she is what the whole story is about. Every time in the Old Testament you read anything about Zion or Jerusalem or the Holy Land, what you're reading there, what you're getting there is a glimpse, a glimmer, a prophecy, something that's pointing to this woman. right? The, the summation of all of creation, the one in whom heaven has come to dwell. What is the temple? The temple is God's dwelling place. What is all of creation? It's the openness before the gift of God who is life, right? Right? Jesus tells those parables, right? The sower went out to sow his seed. Some seed fell on the path. Some seed fell among thorns. Some seed fell on shallow soil. Some seed fell on rich, fertile soil. A man found a treasure buried in a field. He sold everything to buy the field to get the treasure. Mary is the field. Mary is the temple. She is the gate. She is the one through whom heaven comes to earth. I'd rather lay at the threshold of the temple. The threshold of the temple. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. What are God's courts? This woman. I'm telling you, once you begin putting these glasses on, you're going to see it everywhere. Like Everything that God is doing is about preparing for this temple. For this temple. It's almost as if everything, everything that Jesus did was for her. And yes, for us, but our gift comes through her. Oh, man. Okay. Whew, a lot of tangents. I'm sorry. Okay, here we go. All right. Virgin pregnant with God. Virgin pregnant with God. Behold, Isaiah prophesied hundreds of years before Gabriel showed up in the hovel of Nazareth. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Right there. Right here, virgin pregnant with God. We are at the nexus mysteriorum. How's that for a million dollar phrase, right? The heart of the mystery. We're at the very center, the nectar, the heart of the mystery, the heart of the mystery that lies at the heart of our faith, right? At the heart of our faith is the stunning claim that in Jesus, God brought together heaven and earth. That the stunning proposal at the heart of our gospel is a stunning proposal, right? That God in his son Jesus weds the heavenly to the earthly. If you come to the Easter vigil, you'll hear the exalted, oh, blessed night when things of heaven are wed to those of earth, the divine to the human. The heart of the gospel is not God booming from the heavens saying, all right, here's the, here's the basic instructions before leaving earth. Before leaving, leaving earth, okay? Read it, and I'll see you when you die. <laughs> that's, not what, 
That's not the good news of Christianity. And like because of Father Mike Schmitz, it's only because of him we've got Catholics actually reading the Bible right now, right? <laughs> the crazy, stunning proposal at the heart of the gospel is that God has united himself to us. And not only that, he wants to spend eternity with us, right? This is the heart of the gospel. This is what St. Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 5 as the mega mystery, the great mystery. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak in reference to Christ and the church that God wants, if we can put it this way, to marry us. He wants a relationship with us that is the least inadequate way to describe it is that of like husband and wife and the beauty of their nuptial love. He wants not just to be buddies. He wants so much closeness. This is the heart of the mystery, virgin pregnant with God, the union of heaven and earth. There's only one moment in the creed that like warrants a bow of our bodies. It's not when we mention the Father. It's not when we mention the Son of the Holy Spirit. It's not when we mention was crucified, died, and rose again. Not any of those moments. It was, was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. It's the only moment. It's the only moment that gets a bow. It's the heart of the mystery. It's the heart of the mystery. How are we to make sense of this? Virgin pregnant with God. What does this have to do with us? What does this mean? That the human body, the feminine body, was capable of conceiving God? Have you thought about that? <laughs> Sounds like no, maybe. <laughs> like your body is capable of like, digesting a hamburger and conceiving God. Again, you don't seem too impressed. <laughs> like, Father, I've had some good burgers in my day. I mean, <laughs> what does it mean that God has built our bodies in such a way that they're capable of entering into a union with God? That God what does it mean that God was born? What did that, does that mean? All right, so we're going to start here. We're going to take a, a, a step down, a deeper step down. We're going to start by considering Mary's virginity. This is like, like as soon as you say that, everyone's just kind of like, who? Right? It's like when you say, all right, I'm going to preach about Paul and uh, the circumcision. Everyone's like, oh, gosh. Okay. In one of his letters, he says, <laughs> there's a line, he says, we are the circumcision. I'm like, that's a t-shirt just waiting to be made. <laughs> right there. Bumper stickers. Come to Sacred Heart. We are the circumcision. Oh, man, we're recording this, too. Okay. <laughs> All right, she is the Virgin Mary. Why do we call her the Virgin Mary? Obviously, it's because she was and is and is for eternity virginal. However, let's just, we have to settle into this. Going back to our friend Carol Hauslander, she's, she, she got all messed up with the pietistic I don't know, uh, over-sentimentalizing of overly pietistic faithful, right? Who said, don't do anything that would make Mary blush. She's like, uh, I guess I'll just stand still and hold my breath till I die, right? Because, like, I'm incapable of that, right? This, when we think about Mary's virginity, like, I think most Catholics, if you were to ask him, like, well, like, when you, I think the response is something like, well, of course, 
She was the all-holy virgin mother of God, the mother of Jesus. Of course she'd be virginal, right? Because sexuality, I don't know, like it's bad, tainted, dirty, evil, shameful. Like you probably, don't even ask me this question. I shouldn't be thinking about it right now. I'm probably going to go to hell, right? (laughs) We're like, oh boy, (laughs) we got another hour. Yeah, we do. Many Catholics, I would say most Catholics uh, who are alive today, have grown up in a church that, while very well-intentioned, in her efforts to protect her sons and daughters from all of the things that can go astray in this dimension. Many Catholics failed to receive a vision of sexuality that is the yes. We got a lot of the no's. But what are those no's protecting? Right? Every parent here knows that uh, when, you, when your kid is about to put their hand on the hot burner and you say, no! You're not being awful, mean, closed-minded, bigoted, right? Like, your no is protecting something. Your no is for the sake of a yes. Like, yes, I'd like you to have a functioning hand for the rest of your life. You're going to appreciate that, right? Like, no, you can't play in the traffic. No, you can't use the microwave as a fork warmer. Like, none of these things you shouldn't do. The no in the heart of a parent springs from a place of love. And every, every no that the church articulates, especially in this dimension, is protecting the greater yes of human flourishing, freedom, joy, exuberance, all of it, all of it, all of it. I just don't think many of us got that message. I think many of us grew up in what my buddy Christopher West calls the starvation diet gospel. And when it comes to this dimension of our humanity, it's bad, tainted, dirty, shameful, evil, going to lead you to hell. So just stop thinking about it. Shut down those desires. Just follow all of these rules and you'll be a good Christian boy or girl. You know what? I'm just going to show you a clip. This is a, this is a better way to illustrate what I'm talking about. Not that. Here we go.
So that's what the church teaches. I hope you guys have a good night. <laughs> no! Good Lord, no, right? For a few moments of weakness. Oh, oh man. All right. Oh, so good. Wallace Shawn. Man, so good. All right, so here's the deal. If we conceive of sexuality uh, in those terms, like the, the, John Paul II called this kind of uh, folk, the, he called them the masters of suspicion. The masters of suspicion. This perspective that says that there is no redemption possible for our desires, right? You may be noticing the difference between boys and girls now, right? Oh, those things. You might have feelings, right? The Masters of Suspicion says there's no redemption of our desires. All you got to do is, all that's left to do is a management of our desires through moral law. It's not possible, they say, for our desires to be transformed and purified, that we can't possibly love the way that God invites us to love. Like, if we conceive of sexuality in this way as, like, something that is evil, right? Lust, the deadliest of the deadly sins. If we conceive of sexuality in this way... Fact, tangent, side note. If you ever read Dante's Divine Comedy, right? Dante Alighieri, who is that incredible Italian poet, who had this beautiful reflection on the journey from hell through purgatory into heaven. Dante envisions purgatory as this great mountain, the seven-story mountain, which is also the title of Thomas Merton's autobiography, by the way. But the seven-story mountain, and on each level of the mountain, is one of the deadly sins, one of the capital sins. And the, the, the people on that section of purgatory, they're working out their purgation in some capacity. In Dante's Divine Comedy, lust is not at the bottom of the mountain. Lust is actually listed at the very tippy top of the mountain. It's the closest one to heaven. You might be thinking, that's weird. I kind of agree with Father Abruzzi. <laughs> Why would it be listed at the very top? Because lust is the twisting of what heaven is, right? You can only profane that which is sacred. It's hard to profane a washing machine. You with me? Right? Like, like oh my gosh, I can't believe what he did to that washing machine. It's hard to profane a washing machine. But something as good and holy and powerful as human sexuality can be so profane because and only because it is so holy. That's what's going on here. So if we conceive of sexuality as like the bottom of the mountain, as the worst of the deadly sins, as something that is intrinsically evil, tainted, shameful, going to lead us to hell, then yes, of course we'll conclude that Mary's virginity is a negation of sexuality, that it's her fleeing from something that she shouldn't have anything to do with. That's not Christianity. That's, that's Manichaeism. That's Gnosticism. Ancient heresies that say, like, the spirit realm of things is good, but the body and matter realm of like, earthly stuff is bad. Spirit good, body bad. Guys, that's not Christianity. That's heresy. Like, if that were true, the incarnation would be blasphemy. Right? It's the word become 
flesh, if the flesh is evil, tainted, shameful, going to lead you to hell, Jesus should never have become flesh. Christmas is the proclamation that the body is good and holy, right? Behold, he saw all that he had made and said it was very good. Very good. Mary's virginity is not the negation of sexuality, but it points to the ultimate fulfillment of it. We were made for union with God, for union with the Trinity. A union, like I said, that has marriage as its prototype. We were made for union. We were made for union with God. That's what our bodies proclaim. That's what God on every page of the scriptures is trying to tell us. I don't just simply want you to behave well. I want you to open yourself to me. The depths of you that I might pour life into you, that we might share life now and into eternity. To infinity and... Hey, hey. All right. Again, this is what our lady is revealing to us. That's what's going on in Arlene of Guadalupe. She's proclaiming to us the meaning of our bodies. Our bodies are meant for union with the Lord. The problem is we tend to like lean towards this Manichaeism. We tend to lean towards this Gnosticism, this spirit good, body bad thing, because... We believe, we tend to believe that lust is the only way to, it's the only lens through which to view sexuality. And when that's the case, when we hear things like virgin pregnant with God, it's just easier for us to like desexualize Mary than it is for us to de-lust our sexuality. I'm going to say that again. It's easier for us to desexualize Mary and Jesus than it is to de-lust our view of sexuality. So we just put Mary up on a cloud bank and we turn into a porcelain statue who folds her hands for all eternity and Jesus just tells us to be good. That ain't Christianity. That ain't Christianity. To understand this, to understand this virgin pregnant with God, we have to go back and get a bigger view of the entire biblical story. We need to understand it. We need to understand it. This is, the, this, is, this is the golden thread woven throughout the whole story. Okay. Another step down. You're doing good? Whew. All right. Let's just take a second. I just want to pray to the Holy Spirit and just ask for some protection in this area. Because right here, this is where the enemy wants to get in and just do you know, all the things. So let's just pray real quick. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, come into this place. Lord, you, you who are the Lord and giver of life, come into this place, come into this moment. Mother Mary, we ask you, you who are the queen of heaven and earth, to send forth your legion of angels to surround us, to surround this church, that our hearts would be guarded. Lord, guide my speech that what would be said would be exactly what you once said. Lord, whatever is not of you, let it be just blown away by the wind. Amen. In name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay. So virgin pregnant with God. What does this have to do with us? What does this have to do with Advent, Christmas, all of this stuff? All right. So 
You've heard me preach this before, because it's like the one drum I keep beating here at Sacred Heart. This is the lens. You want the glasses to read and understand the scriptures. You need this lens. What is this lens? It's the spousal lens. The entire story is a love story. If you're going to understand a love story, you've got to look at it through a spousal lens. The problem with most Christians is that we've, it's like we've heard the lyrics, but we've not heard the right melody. Right? We've got the lyrics, but right lyrics, wrong melody. The melody of Christianity is like your favorite love ballad. Or we can put it this way. It's the Song of Songs, which is the book in the center of the Bible, which is this incredible story of love and intimacy. Like, that's the soundtrack to Christianity. That's the soundtrack. The Bible begins and ends in this way. The Bible has these bookends that are marriages, right? The Bible begins with the marriage of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Eden, by the way, means fertile pleasure park. Anybody else bummed that we left there? <laughs> Just me? Okay. Like, I'm thinking about my cheeseburgers right now. Yeah. Eden... This is the natural habitat of humanity. And in the Garden of Eden, you have the first marriage, the man to the woman, right? You have Eve being birthed from the side of Adam, right? The first Eve pouring forth out of the side of Adam. The Bible begins in this way. The Bible ends with a new Adam and a new Eve. We got Christ the Lamb like, and his virgin bride, the church, in the book of Revelation. The two bookends of the Bible are marriages, Right? The first human words in Scripture, Adam, right? Up to this point in the story, Adam is just like naming the things, right? Dog, giraffe, uh, platypus, you're a weird one, I don't know. Really? Okay. Okay, then Eve shows up. And suddenly Adam breaks into like a love ballad. He turns into Bill Shakespeare. He's like, this one at last! Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, this one shall be called woman. Because he looked at her and went, whoa, man. <laughs> not true, not true. That's not where that came from. You really shouldn't have laughed at that one. I was, I was really, I'm embarrassed. Those are the first human words in Scripture. The last human words, the last words are the bride in the book of Revelation crying out to the divine bridegroom, come Lord Jesus. It's the bride longing for the consummation of the union, right? Smack dab, like I said, in the very middle of the Bible, the very center of the Bible is the Song of Songs. It's the Song of Songs. You take your Bible, you fold it in half, you're going to arrive at the Song of Songs, basically. What's the Song of Songs? Most Catholics haven't read it. The Song of Songs is the book that Pope Benedict XVI, right? Pope Benedict. Probably going to be a doctor of the church one day. Pope Benedict, the German shepherd, Pope Benedict said that the Song of Songs expresses the essence of biblical faith. What is this book about? It's love poetry. The longing for the bridegroom for the bride, the bride for her bridegroom. It is evocative. It is dripping and if you're a single guy, like I said, it's got a lot of good pickup lines in it. So I'm just going to read you a few of these. So you're at the bar. You go up to that girl. Like, hey, baby. Your hair is like a flock of goats. <laughs> moving down the slopes of Gilead. <laughs> What's your number? Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all which bear twins. In other words, baby, you got all the 
all your teeth, and I like that. <laughs> your belly is like a bushel of wheat. Mmm. <laughs> your navel full of wine. Okay. Yeah. That's why I'm a priest. <laughs> Song of Songs. Sounds weird. Sounds weird. But more commentaries have been written on the Song of Songs than any other book in the Bible. What are the saints seeing that we're not seeing? What do they get that we don't get? When the saints have these incredible experiences with the Lord, like they're not reaching for the imagery of like, oh my gosh, yeah, it was such a powerful prayer experience. He was like, Jesus was like a shepherd and I was just like a little sheep man. It's not what they say. They're reaching for the imagery for the Song of Songs. St. Bernard of Clairvaux, he, he basically did two things in his lifetime. He basically founded monasteries and wrote commentaries on the Song of Songs. What are they seeing that we're not seeing? What are they hearing that we're not hearing? They're hearing the soundtrack. They're hearing the soundtrack. All throughout the Old Testament, the prophets, they... They're they're speaking of their God, of Adonai, Yahweh, not just simply as the Lord of the covenant, not just simply as creator, not just simply as master, not just simply as Lord. They're speaking about him in terms of relationship that's marital, right? I will form a covenant with you. When you hear the word covenant, henceforth, when you hear the word covenant, think marriage. I will form a marriage with you, right? I will form a marriage with you. I will be your God and you will be my people, you hear from the prophet Isaiah as, this, I, I, we're actually going to hear this at Christmas, I believe, uh, one of the Christmas masses. As a young man marries a virgin, so shall your God marry you. As a young man marries a virgin. As a young man marries a virgin, so shall your God rejoice in you. So shall your God marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices in his bride, so, your, so shall your God rejoice in you. Friends, our masculinity and femininity, which more than anything right now is so viciously under attack, the enemy has got all of his diabolical fury aimed at marriage and sexuality in particular. I, I don't know if this is actually true. Um, but I heard that during the Cold War, Russia, Soviet Union... They had all of their missiles aimed at the center of the Pentagon. Like that was the thing that they were all aiming at. Take that out, take it all out. Like what is the devil, what is hell like aiming everything at? He doesn't, he doesn't really care about church politics. He doesn't really care about our politics. He doesn't really care about this. Like all of those are peripheral battles. He's aiming at all the sexual difference, male and female, if he, can, if he can twist that up, he can mess everything up, right? Because our sexuality, our maleness, our femaleness, it's, it's, not, it's not just an incidental fact of our biology, right? It's not just a biological fact. It's not just how we replicate the species. It is the most eloquent, the most articulate icon, the sign that God has written into creation that expresses who he is as an ex- eternal exchange of life and love. And it's the sign that expresses, that unveils how God relates to humanity 
It is not a master-slave relationship. It is bridegroom to bride. You, you, you warp sexuality. You're going to confuse everybody about who God is. That's what's going on. That's what's going on. Our bodies, our masculinity and femininity, it reveals our ultimate destiny. Like the whole purpose of the marriage at the beginning of the Bible was to point to the marriage at the end of the Bible. Right? The whole purpose for earthly marriage is to be a sign that points to the eternal marriage. The wedding supper of the Lamb. Ever heard that phrase before? The supper of the Lamb. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold Him who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those called to the... The Supper of the Lamb, the book of Revelation, is describing a wedding feast. The marriage at the beginning was meant by God from the beginning to point to the marriage at the end. Eternal union with God, right? Heaven is union with God. It is perfect, infinite, glorious union with God. Remember when Jesus was asked by the Sadducees and Pharisees about whether like, we'll be married in heaven. And his response was, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they'll be like the angels. They'll be like the angels. Which is another way of saying, some of you are like, thank God. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> what he's saying is, when you're in heaven, you no longer need the sign that points you to heaven when you're in heaven. When you're in heaven, you no longer need the sign that points you to heaven when you're in heaven, right? Well, like when I was younger, my family and I we used to go on a summer vacation down to Hilton Head Island. It's a 12-hour drive from, you know, northeast Ohio, right straight down the eastern coast to Hilton Head. And when there's like a sign that's about, that says like about 50 miles away. When we got to that sign, we were jacked. We were like, my brother and I in the car were like, all right? When we got to the sign, we didn't pull off the side of the road, get out of the car, and like hug the sign. Be like, we made it! We're at the sign. That would be stupid, right? Like, like, no, keep driving, right? Keep driving, keep driving. Okay, so back to Mary. Back to Mary. We're going to hear at Christmas, she's betrothed to Joseph, right? She's betrothed to Joseph. Which marriage is that a sign of? Mary's betrothal to Joseph. Let me ask you, is that a sign of the marriage at the beginning of the Bible? Or is that a sign of the marriage at the end of the Bible? Mary's betrothal to Joseph. Okay, I am, I, I am leading you on here. Okay, let's try this again. All right, so Mary's, Joseph, Mary's uh, betrothal to Joseph. Is it, this is what I meant to say. Is it a participation in the marriage at the beginning of the Bible or the end of the Bible? Beginning of the Bible, right? Mary's betrothal to Joseph. It's a, it's, it's a participation in the marriage at the beginning of the Bible, right? Earthly marriage. However, one day, an angel comes to her, right? And brings together the heavenly and the earthly. Scripture describes it as the fullness of time. Heaven coming before Mary, pleading with earth. The creator pleading with his creature. Like that's the incredible like, gentleness and respect that our God has for us. He doesn't just barge his way in. He bends the knee and says, will you let me take up residence in you? Will you let me form, will you form my divine person in your human nature? Will you open yourself to me? Will you be who humanity was meant to be, right? Open and in union with God. Mary says yes. Mary says yes. I want you to direct your eyes to the screen and look at this image for a second. Powerful image. It's called Mary consoling Eve. You've got the first Eve in her nakedness and her shame. 
on the fruit of her womb. Oh, so exquisite. St. Irenaeus said that in Mary's yes, she undoes the knot tied by Eve's no. The Ave of Gabriel to Mary undoes the Eva, the Eve. How nice is that, right? The church father's so good. This is Mary in her Annunciation, just wildly open. Oh, I love this image so much. Wildly open. In her yes, she opens when all of humanity had stayed closed. All of those long centuries of human history, right? God knocking on the door of Israel's heart, knocking all those long centuries from from Noah to Abraham to Moses to David through the patriarchs, the prophets, all along the way. God is saying, open to me. In the Song of Songs, you hear the bridegroom coming to the bride saying, open to me, my sister, my bride, open to me, open to me. Pope Benedict, he says that scene where Jesus heals the deaf man, right? The man who's mute and deaf. Jesus comes to him, spits on the ground, takes his finger, touches the guy's tongue. He says he groans and says in Aramaic, Ephatha, which means be opened Pope Benedict said, you could summarize Jesus' entire mission in that one word. It's the bridegroom coming to the bride, the bridegroom coming to humanity. All these long centuries, be opened, be opened, be opened. Like, look at, look at, oh gosh, that's what I want to be. But far more often we are bent down enclosed because we're just scared we're just so scared in her yes heaven takes up residence in her womb she's un- she's united to god let me ask you in this moment in heaven uniting itself to earth the divine to the human mary filled with god's life which marriage is she participating in now in marriage the beginning of the bible end of the Bible. She is living on earth, the fullness of our destiny. She's living in time what we are going to be for eternity. She's living heaven on earth. She's living heaven on earth. So think about this. Why would Mary then go back? Why would she let Joseph pull her back and say, I know you're already at the the finish line, but let's go back here and let's just live the earth in marriage. In Mary's virginity, what she's doing, she's saying, all right, Joseph, come here. We're going to heaven, buddy. Like, come on. Like, she takes Joseph and she yanks him into the glory of what we're all called to. Like, if we think of their union as this, like, like very prim and proper, like, I don't know, like, German Lutheran in the 18th century, just, hello, my darling. Like, like I don't know. I don't know where that all came from. If you're German or Lutheran, I'm sorry. <laughs> I think we just think of them as just this dry, boring couple. No one laughed harder than they did. No one cried harder than they did. No one danced sweeter than they did. No one shared stories into the night more than they did. Their union was a union that we can't even fathom. It was so beautiful. Mary's virginity is not a negation of sexuality. It's... It's the revelation of the ultimate fulfillment of our destiny. We are not destined to be for like merely earthly union. Like all y'all who are married, 
First of all, thank you for saying yes to the vocation. Thank you for stepping into like that incredible, as G.K. Chesterton said, the fight to the death. <laughs> thank you for being a sign of it. But your union is meant to be like a little, 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 little appetizer. Like a glimmer of the glory. Like priests as celibates. What I am invited into, what I was invited into, was like, okay, you've got the earthly earthly marriage over here as a celibate. The Lord has asked me in some ways, like Mary, to step into union with God now, but to live it in time. That's why it's partly why we wear black, to be a sign that we have died to this reality to make present this reality. It's awesome. It's so awesome. I'm so, yeah. Heaven is this union with God. Heaven is this union with God. So again, instead of Mary and Joseph going back, they ran ahead. He got to live with our queen. He got to live with the beloved. Thank you.
Okay, let's zoom in on this pivotal, pivotal scene, this annunciation where we experience it every, every single Mass. Virgin pregnant with God, we need to understand more fully what it means that this woman, right, pregnant with God, like, this is so pregnant with meaning. See what I did there? Oh, okay. You're like, you're not laughing this time. You got us the first time, Father. Okay. So again, let's just resituate ourselves. We are contemplating this image, we are contemplating what we are revealing. Virgin pregnant with God, what does it mean that the human body is capable of entering into this union with God? The church fathers, right, they said that humanity has, they described us as kapax dei. We are capable of God. We are capable of God, not just simply capable of making God present in our intellects and our wills and our ability to love and give love and to know the truth and choose the good. We are capable of participating in divine life. We are capable of union with God. Listen to this. I mean, we don't even hear these verses sometimes, right? 1 Corinthians, the body is for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. The Lord is for the body. God has made our bodies in such a way that they both reveal divine life and that they can participate in it, right? Okay, so, back to Matthew's genealogy. Matthew's genealogy. We're going to hear it in a few weeks at Christmas Eve. You're going to just be standing there going, I shouldn't lock my knees. Don't lock your knees. These are a lot of names. Deacon, please go faster. All right. I'm going to chant this gospel to you now. I'm just kidding. not going to do it. (laughs) I don't know. It's okay. So-and-so became the father of so-and-so. So-and-so became the father of so-and-so. So-and-so became the father of so-and-so. What you have here, you have all of these names, all of these betrothals, all of these natural unions. You have all of these natural conceptions. Now, let's take a look at this. Close-up image. Okay, here we go. All right, so natural conceptions. Remember, Jesus said to Nicodemus, you have to be born anew. We all come into the world through the union of man and woman, through the union of husband and wife. That's how we enter the natural world. Grace builds on nature. If we don't understand the natural, we're not going to understand the supernatural. We have to understand, we have to begin with this view of things. This is the view. We have to start here, right? So you have so-and-so began so-and-so, so-and-so. is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. When his mother Mary was betrothed, was betrothed to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found with child through the Holy Spirit. Like, the natural, the natural builds, the supernatural builds on the natural. We have to start with this. 500 million sperm all racing to one egg. you got to feel bad for this guy. 
of masculinity is meant to be a sign of the super abundant, life-giving, super fertility of God. It matters that it's God our Father that matters. The Father is the one who gives the gift of the seed. The Father is the one who pours himself out in super abundant fertility, right? What do we say? I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. What kind of life? This kind of life or the supernatural life? Supernatural life. I believe in the Lord, the giver of life. 500 million? Holy smokes. Doctors say, I read this in Wikipedia, so you know it's true. Okay. (laughs) That in the course of a man's lifetime, they estimate that he can generate somewhere in the ballpark of 525 billion sperm cells. I know, you're like, that, we don't even know what that number means, Father, right? Like, that just sounds crazy. If you want to count to a million, you know how much time you need. You need about 11 and a half days. If you want to count to a billion, you need about 31 years. We're talking 525 billion. The superabundant life-giving fertility is a sign that Mary was found with child, not through this, but through this. That in that very moment, that very moment that Mary's like body, let's just look at this, let's just not be afraid to blush, we're not going to blush. Mary's body was ovulated. She was a woman, right? And scientists, doctors tell us that and when a woman is ovulating, she is the peak of her beauty. The peak of her beauty. They've done all these studies. Her voice sounds the sweetest. She smells the best. Mary is at the peak of fertility. And at this very moment, heaven, this fireball of glory is so right into her body. The fire that breathed the universe into being. The God who said, let there be light. The God who said, let there be stars also, enters her womb. The word is made flesh. That's when we bow. The church fathers, they called Mary. They said that she is the one that the heavens could not contain, is contained in the womb of the virgin. This is an icon called the Theotokos icon. Theotokos means God-bearer. Mary's the God-bearer in her pregnancy, right? She is the temple, right? Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. She is where God dwells. This is Mary pregnant with God, virgin pregnant with God. This is an icon version of our lady Heaven comes into her womb. He whom the heavens could not contain is contained in the womb of the virgin. When she said yes, the church fathers say that the furthest star in the galaxy, in the universe, danced for joy. The fire that is the glory of the Trinity enters her womb. She shows us what happens when we let God draw close to us. Unlike the myths of the Greeks and the Romans, when the gods draw close to them, humanity is incinerated, obliterated, destroyed, compromised. When God draws close to humanity, when the real God draws close, humanity is magnified. Humanity is illuminated. Mary is the burning bush of the New Testament, and what a blaze she is. Right? The burning bush of the Old Testament. Moses sees this bush, and it's a strange bush, right? As the eighth graders said the other last week, they're like, because it was talking. Right? Yes, okay, so the bush was talking, but it was also on fire. Double weird thing, right? 
But it wasn't consumed by the fire. It was on fire but not consumed. Mary is the burning bush of the New Testament. She is the icon of what we are, what we see in her. We see what humanity was meant to be. I preached this last weekend. Humanity is, Mary is not the exception to the rule of what humanity was meant to be. Mary is the rule. We're the exception. This, this is what it means to be human is to be illuminated with God's glory, to let her glory, let, the God, let God's glory come close, this fire, right? Jesus said, I have come to cast fire on the earth, and how I wish it were blazing. It is blazing in her. It is blazing in her. She is, she is the oven, baking up the bread of the new covenant, right? Right here. I'm the bread come down from heaven. She's baking it right here in her womb. She is the fire. She is the glory, right? She is a cosmic woman. I love this depiction of Our Lady Guadalupe. I just love this painting. This is what it means to be human, but the devil convinces us that this is what it means to be human. Remember a few years ago, it was right before Holy Week, or it was, I think it was right during Holy Week, when Notre Dame burned to the ground. We're not going to talk about the monstrosity of the redesign. That's just, Lord. Spare us. Okay. I couldn't help but see in those images of Notre Dame on fire. Our Lady, right? That's Our Lady. Notre Dame. Our Lady. The diabolical mockery of what Jesus desires for his bride. It's, it's the diabolical mockery. It's the twisting of Our Lady Guadalupe. It's the twisting of the gospel. It's the devil. It's his lie from the beginning. You let him get close. This is going to happen to you. You let him draw near to your wounds. This is what he's going to do to you. You let him draw near to your, to your marriage. He's going to incinerate you. You let him draw near to your fertility as a husband and wife and actually take control and actually speak into that fear that you have. He's going to incinerate you with burden. He's going to destroy you. He's a taker. You can't trust him. He's going to burn you to the ground. This is the lie from the beginning. This is Genesis 3. The enemy has one plate and he runs it over and over and over again. He says you can't trust him. He's not trustworthy. It's a lie from the pit of hell. It's a lie from the pit of hell. When he comes close, when he comes close, we are set on fire with love. Yes, a lot has to get burned away. John of the Cross had this beautiful image of Bonfire of God's love. That when you throw a log into a bonfire initially, there's like hissing and cracking and popping, right? That's the purgation that happens when we let the fire draw close. Yeah, there's going to be pain. God's going to say, that's got to go. You got to let go of that. Not because I don't want you to have fun, but because that is killing you. That is preventing your flourishing. There's pain associated in letting God draw close. Not because he's awful, but because we are so compromised. But the thing is, you let the log stay in the fire long enough. It begins to, the fire enters into the log. So much so that the log literally becomes fire. It becomes a glowing, burning fire. The fire enters the log. That is the story. This, friends, you and I, we all know that there are things in us that have to get purified. We're so afraid of God, letting God right into that place. Surely I'll be destroyed. 
Surely I'll be destroyed. She shows us the truth. She shows us the truth. Open to me, Jesus says. Open to me, my sister, my bride. Let me in. Let me transform you. Pope Benedict. Pope Benedict said a long time ago. Not a long time ago. A few years ago. Pope Benedict said, The problem with Christians today is that they are afraid to burn. Are you afraid of this fire? This is the fire of mercy. This is the fire of beauty. This is the fire of glory. This is the fire that hung the stars in the sky. The problem with most Christians today is they're just afraid to burn. I just, I just want to live my quiet Christian life. I just want to come to Mass, say my prayers, Father, go to confession once a year, make my duty. Bake some cookies, have them at the rectory. <laughs> I actually don't. <laughs> Most people are wanting to have just the lowest possible level of commitment. Like, how little do I have to actually do? How low is the bar? For me to like get in. I'm afraid to burn. And that's sad. When you consider what's being held out to us. This is Teresa of Avila. This is a sculpture that was made by Gian Lorenzo Bernini. It's in a church in Rome called Santa Maria del Vittoria. And it's depicting a moment in her life. And she had this encounter with the Lord in prayer. She said that an angel of God, a cherub, a cherub, which in Greek is eros. Eros is the passion of God. When an angel who is the passion of God came to me in prayer, brandishing in his heart a flaming dart, and pierce my heart over and over again. She said, I was in such agony and such ecstasy that I wanted it to end immediately and I wanted it to continue forever. This is what prayer looks like for a Christian. After she died, they, they removed her heart from her body. And on the surface of her heart was a cauterized scar. Because this wasn't just a spiritual thing. It touches our bodies. The gospel touches our bodies. This is my body given for you. It's the word made flesh. The gospel touches our bodies. This is why we touch our bodies. This is why we stand and sit and kneel. This is why we get bombarded with incense and we hear bells. The gospel touches our bodies. God wants into your body. And he accomplishes it every Sunday. God gets into your body. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is This is prayer. This is St. This is Elizabeth of the Trinity. She had this encounter with the Lord. 
where the fire of the Lord's heart consumed her heart. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what Our Lady Guadalupe is showing us. Pope Benedict again. Are we not perhaps all afraid in some way if we let Christ enter fully into our lives? If we open ourselves totally to him, are we not afraid that he might take something away from us? Are we not perhaps afraid to give up something significant Something unique, something that makes life so beautiful. Do we not then risk ending up diminished and deprived of our freedom? No. If we let Christ into our lives, let Christ into your life, we lose nothing. Nothing, absolutely nothing of what makes life free and beautiful and great. No, only in this friendship are the doors of life open wide. Only in this friendship is the great potential of human existence truly revealed. Only in this friendship do we experience beauty and liberation. Like this woman, clothed in the sun, she lets the blazing glory of God draw close. Friends, you and I, we have this opportunity In prayer, we have this opportunity, especially in confession, to open it, to let the fire, let the cauterization in. I love, this is a painting by Henry Oxenner, it's his enunciation. I just love the way he depicts the angel. How do you depict the angel? How about this angel that's blazing column of fire? She let it in. She let it in. She let it in. Open to me, my sister, my bride. This is what Advent and Christmas are about. Opening the tinderbox of your heart. Exposing everything that is dead and drying and decaying. That the spark might enter. That the fire might enter. This is Christian joy. There is no Christian joy apart from this vulnerability. She's our queen. She's our mother. She's our model. She's everything. She's our yes. So as we bring this night to a close... I'm going to turn to our mother now. The song that we're going to end here, this is a powerful song by the prophet Eric Clapton, (laughs) who struggled tremendously in his life with drugs and substance abuse. And you know the story of Eric Clapton. He lost his son and sent him into this deep spiral, back into drugs and back into rehab. And when he was in rehab... Mary came to him and he wrote this song. Friends, I just want to invite us to open our hearts. I want to invite you right now just to close your eyes and place your hands open on your lap. If you want to peek at the lyrics, that's fine. I just want us to be in this posture, this Marian posture of receptivity, this posture of openness. This posture of our mama. This Advent posture, that wild openness. It says, Lord, I'm letting you in. I don't, I don't even know what that means, but I, I want that. I want the flame. I want that fire. I want that purification. I want you, Lord, and I don't know how to do it. Mary, show me. I need a mom. 
need a mom to show me I'm just a kid. Help me, Lord. Help me, Mary, to receive your son. Because 
God wanted to take on matter. He needed a mater, a mother. There is no Christianity without this woman. There is no Christianity without Mary. You cannot have God the Father as your father without having Mary as your mother. She is his supreme gift to you. And there's many of us who maybe for most of our lives have just not had that relationship. She's been there the whole time. Like the babies in the womb, so often unaware of mom. But you can hear the muffled voice coming in every once in a while. She's there. She's saying, let me show you how to do this walk. You don't have to do it alone. You don't have to do it perfectly. When you fall, I'll run to you. When you're broken, I'll run to you. When you sin, I'm going to run to you. And when you sin again and again and again, I'm going to run to you again and again and again. She just wants to show you how to do it and be with you in all of it. So friends, as we bring this night to a close, I invite you to stand. The Lord be with you. Heavenly Father, through the immaculate heart of Mary, the Queen of heaven and earth, pour forth your blessings upon these, your sons and daughters. May their hearts burn, Jesus. Like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, may our hearts burn for you, Lord. May we not be afraid of burning. For you are trustworthy and you are good. And let all of our Advent preparation prepare us to receive you, Jesus, more deeply. That Christmas might touch our bodies. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let's give it up for the predictables. And for Our Lady Guadalupe. And friends, as you leave the church, like I said, some of our youth group friends will be at the door. Thank you so much. God bless you. And we'll see you soon.